Greetings, Ford Radio listeners. Dave Robinson here, and you are now listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. Well, you know, this show and this radio station, Forward Radio 106.5 FM in Louisville, Kentucky, it doesn't run by itself. There's an amazing team of volunteers making it all happen. And they've been making it happen for the past five years. Yeah, it was April 9th, 2017, that Forward Radio first started beaming its particular VHF signal to the Louisville community. And now we are celebrating. But volunteers can't do it alone. We need you to step up too. We've just started our annual fundraising drive, and it's going to continue until April 9th when we'll be celebrating in person at the Tim Faulkner Art Gallery from 1 to 4 p.m. for our fifth anniversary party. Please drop by, and whether you can attend or not, please do donate to this all-volunteer, community-run radio station. Just visit our website at forwardradio.org. And there's even some cool gifts you can receive for your donations, even as little as $25. Well, let's get on with some science. Well, here is Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science giving us another update on what science and education bills are being voted upon by the Kentucky legislature this year. Take it away, Rob. Time is getting short in the Kentucky General Assembly's 2022 session. Even though there are just four working days left this session, we are bound to see a lot of activity in those days. Two of those legislative days will be held this week, then lawmakers take a recess for a couple weeks and come back to the Capitol in mid-April for the final two days of the session. The Kentucky Academy of Science has following bills we either like or have concerns about. In recent days, we've kept track of movement of a number of bills that impact our system of education, as well as environmental bills. One of the big education bills is Senate Bill 1. This legislation will take the power to create school curriculum away from site-based councils and will instead give it to superintendents. What's more, this bill was amended in recent days so that it also now includes language that says school instruction on race, sex, and religion must be consistent with designated concepts that lawmakers are putting into state law. So what are those designated concepts? Well, there's a number of them, but for example, there's one that says defining racial disparities solely on the legacy of slavery is destructive to the nation's unity. Now, let's just pause here and say that it is out of the ordinary for lawmakers to weigh in like this on the state's academic standards. Kentucky has a carefully defined academic standards review process one that fosters analysis, deliberation, it gets inputs from educators and experts and citizens, and it's a process that is certainly different from the top-down approach that lawmakers are taking on this issue. Going further into this legislation, it also lists 24 speeches and documents that lawmakers say must be taught in schools. This includes works like the Mayflower Compact, some of the Federalist Papers, speeches by George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, and Ronald Reagan. Lawmakers say they aren't setting curriculum. That's something that's typically done at the local level. 
but rather they say they are setting academic standards for schools to follow. Whichever way you look at it, they are specifying issues that they want taught in classrooms. This legislation, Senate Bill 1, has passed both the Senate and the House, and it's now on its way to the governor's desk. Bills that could impact our soil, air, and water have also been hot issues in recent days. The Senate has approved a resolution that calls for an examination of funding sources and research institutions capable of conducting a feasibility study on advanced nuclear energy for electric power generation. You may recall Kentucky lifted its moratorium on nuclear power plants several years ago, and yet nothing has come of that yet, largely due to the lower cost of natural gas. Nuclear has always been an issue with people on both sides of it, uh, with one side drawing attention to concerns about safety and the, the question of how to deal with waste from nuclear facilities, with the other side saying nuclear is increasingly becoming more safe, and they also note it's a zero-carbon option that can help deal with the, the growing demand for electricity, particularly as electric cars become more common. Well, if this issue divides the public, I'll say there were no such divisions in the Senate when they considered this particular issue. It advanced on a 30-0 to zero vote, and the bill now goes to the House. A measure on advanced recycling, also referred to as chemical recycling, is close to going to the governor. In fact, depending on when you hear this report, it may already be on his desk. This legislation, House Bill 45, changes language in state law in a way that's meant to lure facilities to Kentucky that break down plastics into their tiniest parts in a chemical process that then allows those parts to become used in new products. It's interesting to note that some of Kentucky's main environmental groups have different takes on this issue, with one expressing concerns about greenhouse gases that could be emitted in this process, while also reminding people that the ultimate answer is to have less plastic manufactured to begin with. Other top environmentalists, however, say that if an advanced recycling facility helps keep plastic out of landfills, it's worth a shot. Kentucky lawmakers once again showed their allegiance to fossil fuels with a bill proposed in response to the fact that some financial companies say they are ready to turn their attention to clean energy production and they no longer want to finance fossil fuel companies. State lawmakers are objecting to this with legislation that says the state will divest its money from financial companies that choose to do this. This type of legislation has been pushed within the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC, which has been referred to as a bill mill for corporate interests. They develop bills friendly to corporations, then try to get those bills introduced in states throughout the nation. Kentucky's bill, known as Senate Bill 205, bears a striking resemblance to those ALEC bills. We will end our roundup of some of the bills dealing with the environmental issues with a measure that brings some good news. A bill that is advancing in the Senate would change some language and statutes that would help make Kentucky eligible to receive as much federal funding as possible to plug orphaned gas and oil wills. There are thousands throughout the state, and Kentucky has done a good job at cataloging them, 
but money has not been available to plug them and help with mitigating harmful emissions. Now, with federal funds available, the state is looking at making significant progress on this issue. Before I go, I'll say there are some large question marks still for lawmakers to deal with this year, all dealing with the largest issue they're responsible for, and that is the state budget. They still have to come to an agreement on the state's next two-year budget. One of those first questions is, will lawmakers fund full-day kindergarten? Also, will the available funds that lawmakers haven't appropriated, and it's a large number, more than $1 billion, will that money offer a cushion for the tax rebates and income tax cuts that some lawmakers want, even while others caution that this could set us up to have a big hole in future budgets? And how about land conservation? The state's Land Heritage Conservation Fund has seen revenue drop 70% over the past decade. With record surpluses, will that give lawmakers a chance to better protect Kentucky's biodiversity and natural areas? The answers will be in soon. Lawmakers are determined to pass a budget before their veto recess starts on March 31st. In the meantime, the Kentucky Academy of Science will keep following these issues and more. We invite you to join us. You can see the bills we're tracking online, so if you grab a pen and want to write down our web address, you'll be able to keep an eye on the same bills that we're following. You'll find those bills at kyscience.org, and you'll want to click at the top of the page that says 2022 Science Policy Work. Also, let lawmakers know about the issues you care most about. The General Assembly's message line makes it easy to do this. You can leave a message for lawmakers with an operator, and your message will promptly get exactly to the lawmakers' offices that you prefer. The message line number is 1-800-372-7181. Let lawmakers hear from you. Reporting from Frankfurt for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber. That was Rob Weber reporting for us from Frankfort, Kentucky. Thanks, Rob. And now, citizen science. You know, amateurs can contribute a lot to scientific advances, and that's what citizen science is. And here to tell us about another community science opportunity, it's past contributor Mary Williams telling us about how any of us can be a planet hunter. Take it away, Mary. Hi. This is Mary Williams, and the citizen science opportunity that I am bringing to you today is a project called Planet Hunters Next Generation Transit Survey, or NGTS. This project is focused on helping scientists to discover new exoplanets. An exoplanet is a planet that orbits a star that is beyond our solar system. They come in all sizes, from very small planets to gas giants the size of Jupiter. The discovery of exoplanets has also intensified the interest of extraterrestrial life. There is a special interest in planets that orbit a star's habitable zone, a zone where it is possible for liquid water to exist on the planet's surface, which is a prerequisite to life. The Next Generation Transit Survey is a wide-field photometric survey based at the Paranel Observatory in northern Chile, 
consisting of 12 robotic telescopes designed to make high-precision measurements sensitive enough to detect exoplanet transits. Every 10 seconds, the NGTS telescopes take an image of the brightest stars looking for exoplanet transitions. Computers are used to analyze the changes in the brightness of the stars over time. The brightness is referred to as the star's light curve. These light curves aid in the discovery of exoplanets because the brightness of the star decreases as a planet passes in front of it. The period of reduced brightness may provide evidence of planetary transits. This would be similar to a solar eclipse, when the moon passes between the Earth and the sun, causing a dimming effect on the sun's brightness. By focusing on Earth to Neptune-sized exoplanets, orbiting cool, small, but bright stars, the Next Generation Transit Survey is intending to provide new planets for further examination by other telescopes, such as the brand new James Webb Space Telescope. Simulations of Next Generation Transit Survey performance reveal the potential for discovering approximately 231 Neptune-sized and 39 Earth-sized planets in the future. Although computers are good at processing the data, scientists believe that the human eye is better at recognizing visual patterns than computers are. Imagine that. This is where we, as amateurs, called citizen scientists, come in. In the words of one researcher, join the exoplanet hunt and help find exoplanets in the next generation transit survey observations waiting to be found. This could be a fun volunteer project for anyone who is interested in planets or astronomy in general. As I am fascinated by astronomy, I signed up to join in the search. From there I was shown graphs of stars light curves where you are asked to identify the type of light curve that you see. Then you enter your visual observations. Very simple, but fun. Wouldn't it be neat to know that you discovered a distant, unknown planet? They also have a discussion board where you can discuss your observations with fellow planet hunters. Scientists believe that there may be exoplanets that have been missed in the data that has already been researched by computers. That's why they need us. If you would be interested in joining this search and helping scientists in the process, you can do so by going to Zooniverse, that's Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E dot O-R-G slash project. When you get on the website, simply click on Planet Hunters NGTS. From there, you will be on your way to possible exoplanet discoveries. Thank you, and good luck. That was Mary Williams telling us about the Next Generation Transit Survey being performed by citizen scientists like herself. And I'll tell you something kind of cool. The predecessor of the Next Gen Survey was the TESS Survey, with TESS standing for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Well, the TESS program just published a paper in ARXIV Astrophysics. It was on February 16, 2022 where they described a major discovery made by the amateurs working on this project. Now, it's not exoplanets they discovered, 
These citizen scientists, though, found the data that led to the discovery of a triple star system. It's three massive stars, one of them being 15 times the size of our own sun, orbiting around each other really rapidly. Two of the smaller stars orbit around each other almost every 26 hours, while a third star, which was the really big one, orbiting around the other two every 52 days. And apparently this confirmation is really quite unusual. And of the 40 co-authors of this paper, more than half of them, 21 people, were actually amateur scientists doing exactly the kind of thing that Mary Williams is doing. Anyway, thanks, Mary, for telling us about that. Next, Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science will be interviewing Alexandria Driehaus of Western Kentucky University about her undergraduate research on recognizing scents using gas chromatography. Take it away, Amanda. Hi, everyone. This is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. And I am in the studio today with one of our student winners from the KAS annual meeting in November. I'm with Alexandra Driehaus, who's at Western Kentucky University. Alexandra won a prize in our physics section in November. Alex is doing some really fascinating interdisciplinary research. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to Bench Talk. Thanks for having me. If you would like to just start by telling us about your research, it's really interesting and unique, and I would love for you to just describe what you're, what you're working on. Yeah, so I am working with Dr. Novikov and Dr. Dobrokotov at Western Kentucky University. We're developing an algorithm that if you input a gas chromatography signal, it'll output a verbal description of that chemical scent. So we are using data that was compiled by Andrew Drepniks in 1985. He created a bank of descriptors and their applicabilities to 160 chemicals. This is 146 dimensional data. So the first thing that we really had to do was find a way to uh, visualize it. That's probably the most important part because scents are categorized by their verbal descriptions. So we needed to find where these shared verbal descriptions are. Instead of going through, I think it's 300 plus pages of these really convoluted tables. You mentioned that there was some practical application of this, like that somebody could go out into the field with a gas chromatograph and do some analysis and the verbal descriptions could be helpful for somebody in applied analysis. Yeah, so there are people who are trained to as like sniffers, not like dog sniffers, like people. They have these things that are called nasal rangers. And I 100% recommend looking that up because it looks completely ridiculous. It's like you have one of those like radar guns, but like to your nose. They've been cited in actually court cases because there's limit to how much waste you can smell from a residential area from like a landfill. And there were some people that were sued because these people with their nasal rangers could smell more than the limit of waste. So it's wow. kind of it's kind of nuts. Wow. But it's easy to imagine a bunch of different scenarios where this could be helpful. And it's very interesting to me 
what you're doing because it just uh, it touches on physics, it touches on math and statistics and chemistry and even psychology and the way that people perceive different smells and the verbalization of that. So it's such a fascinating project. And I want you to talk a little bit about the visualization. Um, if folks want to follow along at home, we are at the KAS website, kyscience.org. And if you open up the online program, you will see our presenters' presentations that all are uploaded in the program. So you can find Alex Driehaus's presentation with the images and the graphs so that as she's describing what she's doing, you can actually see some of these amazing analyses in her presentation. So if you would describe how do you go about putting a verbal to a visual and, um, and pulling the information together that way? So. There were 146 descriptors, and for each of the 160 chemicals, they were scaled on a scale of zero to five, with zero being completely inapplicable and five being completely descriptive. So these contain descriptors such as cinnamon, rose, cadaverous, you know, very similar things <laughs> that you would use to describe scents. And as humans, we can't really visualize 146 dimensional data. We kind of limit ourselves to three. That's, that's kind of the max. So one thing that we did was we used these things called spider plots. They look like circles. They're not, they're just different radars where each ray is a different descriptor. And if you look on each of the graphs, you will see different little little spiky doos. Mm -hmm. That's what I refer to them as. That's the technical term, I guess. <laughs> Polygons. <laughs> they uh, intersect each of these rays at that applicability for that descriptor. So we plotted the different families together just to show that different families have similar descriptions within those families, you know, because that's how you define the families by their shared descriptions. Yeah, you have a you have an image in the presentation showing what those different families are. And just to give people an idea, like what are some of those categories? So these families include citrus, which is like orangey, lemon, that kind of thing, grapefruit, the floral, which smells like flowers mostly, rose, lavender, those will kind of fit in there. You have woody, which is more of like an oak mm -hmm. kind of scent, cedar. Cedarwood is pretty, pretty popular. And like, so there are eight different ones like yeah. this that are already like grouping some smells that we would identify as being similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's how you would characterize notes in a perfume is where you actually get those. So that's kind of where we took this because there are different ways to categorize scents and perfumes mm -hmm. as well. And that's the main way that you would interact with some mm -hmm. of these descriptors in your everyday life. Okay. So your algorithm is using some of these, when you train the algorithm, you're already kind of using these identified similarities. Yeah. So the first thing I was tasked with was sorting all of these chemicals into their families. And once that was done, we could go on from there. I used Python to generate all of the spider plots. I also used a uh, principal component analysis and something called TSNE. But these are both ways to reduce multidimensional data. 
So from this 146 dimensions that you can't really visualize because you live in a world of three dimensions to two or three. So that's easier to visualize. They look like different blobs of each of a different color. We couldn't get a clear picture with blobs of just one color because what I found was that some of these families had shared descriptors. And I think that's one of the issues when working with human perception, as opposed to something that is in like ones and zeros, you know, it's either it is or it isn't. You also have an interesting graph in your presentation showing some of the chemical components and how the verbal descriptions line up with those chemical components and all the different words that are used to describe things that have that particular molecule in them. So that was from another paper. There are people that are working on connecting numerical data to human perception. One of these was uh, looking at the different ways that people describe things. Another one looked at gas chromatography with lotions and how similar scents kind of correspond in that realm. So this is actually not a question that is purely ours. This is something that is being pursued in different realms. Yeah. And one of the things that's so interesting about your research is how many different disciplines it touches. And I wonder if you want to share any of your impressions or experiences in working in this interdisciplinary research space. What has that been like for you? So I think that that's actually my favorite thing about research is working with people that may not be purely in physics, which is what I'm interested in. Because I think that different people from different scientific backgrounds bring a lot to the table. And it's really nice to learn different modes of looking at the same problem, because I approach it from physical perspective, but I work with the material science who brings that to his part of the project. I also love that, you know, data visualization is something that is a really specific kind of skill set and a talent that I think a lot of scientists kind of work on developing through their careers. And I love seeing good examples of this where people really are good at bringing data into visual representations. And I just think that's fascinating kind of work to do. So I think it's really neat that you have so many different ways of representing what you're doing. And I would really encourage people to go to the presentation so they can see some of your visuals. Thank you. I wonder if you want to tell us where do you see yourself going next? Do you have next steps since you're graduating in May? What would you like to do with this research experience or or where do you see yourself going in your career? So I did submit applications to PhD programs in physics, mostly in plasma or high temperature, some in condensed matter. I'm really hoping to pursue program with a lot of interdisciplinary elements where I can work with people who may not be with my same physics background, I guess. Well, it's great that you've had a chance to work as, as a member of a team and gotten to meet scientists all across the, the spectrum. That's one of the things I love about KAS is that we're an interdisciplinary scientific society. So I just love seeing people who thrive in that space. And um, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for bringing it to the annual meeting and congratulations on your award. Thanks for joining us today, Alec. Thank you for having me. That was Amanda Fuller 
interviewing Alexandra Driehaus of Western Kentucky University. Thanks, Amanda and Alexandria, and congratulations to Alex for winning her award. And thanks to you all today for joining us on Bench Talk the Weekend Science. Please consider sending a financial contribution to our mothership, Forward Radio, for bringing us shows like this one, as well as dozens of other fine, local, and nationally syndicated shows to the Louisville community. And they've been doing it for five years now. And if you want them to continue to do that, you need to contribute now. Just go to forwardradio.org and click on our Pledge Drive logo at the top of the page. I'm donating some money myself just to get my hands on some of the gifts they are offering. And because I can't imagine living in a city without a radio station specifically run for the people and by the people. This is Dave Robinson signing off for Bench Talk the Week in Science here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.